0: Okay, so here's a good hellfire picture. And it just would be interesting to go around and talk with all of you and just see, you know, was there ever a time in your life when uh, this was something that was um, terrifying for you? Uh, I went through a period when I was maybe 10 or 11 and um, I couldn't sleep at night. And my thought was after hearing a Actually, it was at a summer camp that I went to. And every night, the uh, evangelistic series, it was it was very uh, terrifying. And there was discussion of hellfire. And I used to think, try to imagine, what would it be like to burn all over and yet to be fully conscious of it and to have that go on for eternity. Um, you know, that'll keep children awake at time. It certainly did for me. So I think, you know, this Bible study, our focus is to try to understand God's character. So is this a subject that helps to paint a picture of who God is? I think this is one of the most important subjects of all. So we're going to talk about the rich man and Lazarus this time, and then in two weeks uh, we'll say more about hell in general. Okay. First of all, just um, what's a little bit intimidating about this subject is just when you go through and you read, at least in the history of the Western Christian Church, the great, uh, many of the great spiritual giants who have just made very definite statements about hell. Okay, how do you g- disagree with some of these individuals? Uh, here's Tertullian, who said, At that greatest of all spectacles, that last in eternal judgment, how shall I admire, how laugh, how rejoice, how exult when I behold so many proud monarchs groaning in the lowest abyss of darkness? So many magistrates liquefying in fiercer flames than they ever kindled against the Christians. So many sages, philosophers, blushing in red-hot fires with their deluded pupils. So many tragedians, more tuneful in the expression of their own sufferings. So many dancers, tripping more nimbly from anguish than ever before from applause. And what I find interesting is how many times it is described, "'We shall be pleased.'" When we see this, okay, and in several other places, Tertullian said, "We will, I mean, here laugh, rejoice, exult when he witnesses uh, that awful spectacle." Okay, a little bit, a couple hundred years later, Augustine, who said this about hell: "They who shall enter into the joy of the Lord shall know what is going on outside in the outer darkness. The saints' knowledge which shall be great." shall keep them acquainted with the eternal sufferings of the lost. So, we're in heaven, we have a constant, vivid reminder, we can see what is actually going on in the other place as well. Thomas Aquinas, he uh, said some wonderful things, but I just have to take a step back here on this quote of his about hell. In order that the happiness of the saints may be more delightful to them, and that they may render more copious thanks to God for it, they are allowed to see perfectly the sufferings of the damned. So that they may be urged the more to praise God. So it's kind of like, uh, boy, you're happier you're not there. And it makes heaven even a better place. The saints in heaven know distinctly all that happens to the damned. Okay, John Calvin. Okay, that's certainly, uh, if you're making a top ten list or whatever of uh, most well-known Christians in the last two thousand years, he'd, I'm sure, make the list. And he said, forever harassed with a dreadful tempest, they shall feel themselves torn asunder by an angry God and transfixed and penetrated by mortal stings, terrified by the thunderbolts of God and broken by the weight of his hand, so that to sink into any gulf would be more tolerable than to stand for a moment in these terrors. And he went on to say that there are babies a span long in hell. John Bunyan, if any of you appreciated Pilgrim's Progress, he has a very vivid depiction here of hell. Set case you should take a man and tie him to a stake, and with red-hot pinchers pinch off his flesh by little pieces for two or three years altogether, And at last, when the poor man cries out for ease and help, the tormentors answer, Nay, but besides all this, you must be handled worse. We will serve you thus these twenty years together. And after that, we will fill your mangled body full of scalding lead and run you through with a red-hot spit. Would this not be lamentable? But he that goes to hell shall suffer ten thousand times worse torments than these, and yet shall never be quite dead under them. Isaac Watts, so just look up in your hymnal. Okay, a lot of wonderful um, words written by Isaac Watts. Okay, and so maybe we could sing this, and it would sound nice, but what do you think of the words? What bliss will fill the ransomed souls when they in glory dwell to see the sinner as he rolls in quenchless flames of hell. Again, the delight aspect, uh, which is so often there. And of course, uh, Jonathan Edwards, if we were just to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I'm sure many of you have read that, so I just picked out one little um, part of it here. Here, all judges on earth have a mixture of mercy, but the wrath of God will be poured out upon the wicked without mixture. Imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven, and imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour, full of fire, as full within and without as a bright coal fire. All the while full of quick sense, what horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? Oh, then how would your heart sink if you knew that after millions and millions of ages your torment would be no nearer to an end than ever it was, but your torment in hell will be immensely greater than this illustration represents. Okay, John Wesley, someone who, uh, again, wrote some really wonderful things, but here's his description of hell. Is it not common to say to a child, put your finger in that candle. Can you bear it even for one minute? How then will you bear hellfire? Surely it would be torment enough to have the flesh burnt off from only one finger. What then will it be to have the whole body plunged into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone? Consider that all these torments of body and soul are without intermission. Be their suffering ever so extreme, be their pain ever so intense, there is no possibility of their fainting away, no, not for one moment." They are all eye, all ear, all sense. Every instant of their duration, it may be said of their whole frame that they are trembling alive all over and smart and agonized at every pore. And at this duration, there is no end. Neither the pain of the body nor of the soul is any nearer an end than it was millions of ages ago. Okay, I deleted about 10 of these slides because I thought you know, this will be a little depressing if we go on too long. So here's the last one. A recent theologian. Love and pity for hell's occupants will not enter our hearts. So we view human suffering now, and we have love and pity. But in the hereafter, uh, that will be gone. No love or pity for those suffering in hellfire. And so you've probably seen signs like this. In a church, how will you spend eternity? Smoking or non-smoking? Or... Turn or burn. I've seen, uh, we were in Los Angeles not too long ago, and I don't know what the people were picketing, but they all have the turn and burn signs there. Um, now, wh- the problem with this is, um, as I've tried to describe how God wins us to his side, it's, it's kind of like a, a marriage proposal. right? And we've said that you cannot coerce that situation. Love and freedom go hand in hand. So, the question is, does God say to us, You know, all I want is your love freely given. Okay, but I have to tell you, if you don't, I will torture you for all of eternity. Now do you freely give me your love? Okay, is that, is that the reality of the situation? Is it love God or he will burn you forever? Is that how it really works? And again, can you see the, the coercive aspect there? I think probably many people have turned to God just out of terror. Okay, but is that how God wants to win us to his side? So we have problems there. So, are we allowed to disagree with spiritual giants? And um, someone said to me last week, you know what, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around what you said and some things that Luther said. And uh, so someone like Luther, I mean, I, I have an extremely high opinion of Luther. I've quoted uh, how he spent the best hours of the day in prayer. He was a friend of God. But do we need to agree with every single thing that a spiritual giant um, has uh, preached? And I'll just give you an example. This is not to put down Luther. Again, I I admire Luther. But about the book of Revelation, Luther said, My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. So even though he used the sola scriptura phrase here, he didn't think much of Revelation. Now, he did later come to appreciate Revelation, uh, as some have noted mainly as as a hammer against the Catholic Church. Okay, but about the book of James, he said this is a book of straw, and so he w- he was opinionated. Okay, are we allowed to have a, a high opinion of the book of Revelation? Because Luther uh, didn't. So I think we we have to work this out for ourselves, right? We want to appreciate everything that spiritual giants have talked about. Okay, but but we need to what we understand is truth. It's individual. It's what do you believe? It's between you and God, and you want to really work at this. Now, one thing I've appreciated about this uh, institution and the lady who wrote the quotes here on the banners, uh, there there was an appreciation for uh, truth being progressive and coming to new understanding in greater light, that there was not some static point in time where we had all the truth and it's just going back a couple hundred years and, and understanding it as it was back then. So she wrote this in 1892, there is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed, and that all our expositions of Scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. Okay, so we need to to tackle these issues and come to our own understanding. So the the picture of hell that's often presented, I, I would say this is one of the leading causes of atheism, really. That picture of God. That picture of God who enjoys the suffering of those in hell and would encourage us to enjoy the suffering of those in hell. And so just some two counter quotes on that. Bill Hicks said, According to Christianity, eternal suffering awaits anyone who questions God's infinite love. That's the message we're brought up with. Believe or die. Thank you for giving, Lord, for all these options, he said sarcastically. Okay, and then just one other here, Lauren Anderson. So revolting to my moral nature is the creed of eternal punishment that it, more than any other cause, produces the most widespread unbelief. Compared with this, all objections to Christianity fade to insignificance. So again, if if we take the Christian message very seriously, um, this is one of the most important issues. So I think uh, before we get into the rich man and Lazarus, since that is the, the story that is very often used as a proof about a certain version of hell, um, first I just want to address this very quickly. Does God enjoy seeing his enemies punished? Okay, to answer that question, we, we want to read real stories, real things that happen. So we could key text it, and there are lots of key texts like this in Ezekiel 33, where God says, "'Surely as I, the living Lord, am a living God, I do not enjoy seeing sinners die.'" I would rather see them stop sinning and live. Israel, stop the evil you are doing. Why do you want to die? And in Hosea, when we talked about this a couple of years ago, you know his people are going off into the Assyrian captivity, and you can just hear the, the tears in God's voice as they do. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? Could I ever destroy you as I did Adma, or treat you as I did Zebon? My heart will not let me do it. My love for you is too strong. Uh, there's great emotion passion of God, um, even that God of the Old Testament we sometimes talk about, well here, uh, God revealing his, his sadness as his people go into captivity. So yeah, there are, there are key texts like this, um, but the, the words of Jesus, can we reconcile Jesus who is fully God, one in mind, heart, and character with the Father, um, and the, the notion of hell. First of all, Jesus, uh, we've read this so many times in Matthew 5. Said, you've heard it said, Love your friends, hate your enemies, but now I tell you, love your enemies. So the God who tells us, Love your enemies. This is how you treat your enemies. At some point is everything kind of flipped over. God loves his enemies up until a certain point, and then he hates them, and he has wrath on them for all of eternity. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Notice, so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven, because God is like that. God Sends sun on the good and the bad. He gives rain to those who do good and those who do evil. So God loves his enemies. He treats his enemies that way. Okay. How do we reconcile this with um, a certain version of hell? And again, I think most compelling. God comes as a baby. And the defining moment of his ministry is when he laid down his life for his enemies to redeem them. Okay, so is this just a little blip? That's one little picture, one tiny little pixel on the character of God. We need to round it out with hell and all of the kinds of things. Or is this the defining image of what God is like? And we need to fit all of our theology into that. Okay, that's the position I would take. Okay, so we come to the parable. First of all, why tell the parable? Well, I guess someone would say it isn't a parable. Okay, I'm going to say that it is a parable. But why tell it? And... For this, we need to back up and we need to see the rich man and Lazarus as one of five parables that were told in one setting. Okay, I don't think um, this was Jesus saying, okay, I think it's time that we teach some doctrine about hell. So I'm going to tell the rich man and Lazarus story so that we, we clear up some doctrine. Okay, The setting is so important here. Here's the setting, the beginning of Luke chapter, chapter 15. One day when many tax collectors and other outcasts came to listen to Jesus, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law started grumbling. This man welcomes outcasts and even eats with them. And notice, so Jesus told them this parable. Okay, and some have argued that Jesus was crucified because of the people that he ate with. And so many times, you know, they were upset. Tax collectors, prostitutes, fishermen. That Jesus seemed to take such an interest in that segment of society. And so they're grumbling about this, as they were many times. And so Jesus told them this parable. Could we say he told them these five parables? Okay, and the issue is their view of outcasts of society. So the first one here is the 99 sheep, and of course one is lost. The second one is there are nine silver coins. One is lost. Okay, then we have the story of the prodigal son. Of course, we have a loyal son, in quotes, and the lost son who returns, uh, then a very interesting parable about the shrewd manager, okay. In contrast to people who belong to the light, and then we have the rich man and Lazarus, okay. And the the point of a of a parable is so often that you get wrapped up in the story, and then there's this amazing surprise at the end, and you're like, whoa, and kind of like uh, when Nathan came and told David the story. Remember about the man who stole the sheep from the man who only had one sheep. And David's totally gripped in the story. And then at the very end, there's this twist. You are the man. Okay, So a parable is has that kind of a, of a punch. It's not to make ten points of doctrine. It's to make a point or two. So the first parable, the 99 sheep, which you're all familiar with. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. What do you do? You leave the other 99 sheep in the pasture and go looking for the one that got lost until you find it. When you find it, you are so happy that you put it on your shoulders and carry it back home. Then you call your friends and neighbors together and say to them, I am so happy I found my lost sheep. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 respectable people who do not need to repent. Okay, now let's just imagine we're there. Okay, and and so there are the Pharisees around Jesus, telling him, "Why are you hanging out with these people?" And Jesus tells this story. Um, who would you imagine? Let's let's just imagine we're Pharisees, and we don't like Jesus' company. Um, who would you imagine are the 99 in this story? Who would you see yourself as? You know, in your religious garb and all of that. Are you the 99, or are you the one? You're in good shape, right? You're you're the ninety-nine. Is that the reality? Uh, no, but if you heard this parable, you would consider you're on you're in, right? Who's the lost sheep? Well, it's those tax collectors, right? In reality, they are the ones that are coming into the kingdom. So why did he tell the story this way? Uh, don't you think this is a pretty um, I mean, if you saw yourself as the 99 and someone tells you, look, don't you have compassion for these lost sheep? Uh, Wouldn't that be an effective way of perhaps penetrating through this barrier and saying, you know what, actually Jesus is right. Look at these people. We should be out concerned about these people. Don't you think that's an effective way of turning the tables and maybe saying Jesus is right going after this group? Okay, the reality, of course, is that these religious leaders are the lost sheep. Okay, but... He kind of turns the tables, I think, to instill some compassion um, for these outcasts. Well, it appears uh, maybe it didn't work. Because, well, and just just a quote on this in Matthew 21. Jesus said, I tell you the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom ahead of you, you religious people. Okay, so sometimes he was very plain. But here, I just like the way he kind of gets his foot in the door with these uh, self-righteous people. Okay, so the second parable. Same setting. Or suppose, again, he's going on, or suppose a woman who has ten silver coins loses one of them. What does she do? She lights a lamp, sweeps her house, and looks carefully everywhere until she finds it. That's kind of interesting. The sheep knows he's lost. Okay? The coin doesn't even know he's lost. So maybe it's talking about uh, different types of people. I don't even want to stretch it too far. But it's the same kind of thing as the lost sheep. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together. And says to them, I'm so happy I found the coin I lost. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, the angels of God rejoice over one sinner who repents. Okay, so same kind of message as uh, the lost sheep. Okay, parable number three. And this is one we should spend a lot more time on. It's, It's one of the most beautiful stories Jesus told about the prodigal son. Jesus went on to say, again, it's the same. He's continuing. It's now the third parable. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger one said to him, Father, give me my share of the property now. So the man divided his property between his two sons. After a few days, the younger son sold his part of the property and left home with the money. He went to a country far away where he wasted his money in reckless living. He spent everything he had. Then a severe famine spread over that country, and he was left without a thing. So he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him out to his farm to take care of the pigs. He wished he could fill himself with the bean pots the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything to eat. At last he came to his senses and said, all my father's hired workers have more than they can eat, and here I am about to starve. I will get up and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. And this is uh, just the incredible part of this story. That when he got up and started back to his father, uh, he was still a long way from home when his father saw him. I mean, you imagine the father there looking down the road, waiting for him to show up. He was a long way from home when his father saw him. And his heart was filled with pity. Okay, again, filled with pity for the lost sheep, for the lost coin. And here the, the prodigal son filled with pity. And he ran threw his arms around his son and kissed him. Father, the son said, I have sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Now, if this parable fit perfectly for the lost sheep and the lost coin, that would be the end of the story. And the father just rejoices, and there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents, and so on. But, but Jesus is kind of, he's, he's digging deeper with this one. Okay? He wants to make it, they didn't get the message, and so he's trying to make it very plain to them. So we have a story of someone else. But the father called to his servants. Hurry, he said. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Then go and get the prized calf and kill it and let us celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's been found. And so the feasting began. And again, if he's just making the same point, it would stop there. Okay, But it continues on with the older brother, who is the the Pharisee. Okay, Jesus is wanting them to identify with the older brother. So in the meantime, the older son was out in the field. On his way back, when he came close to the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come back home, the servant answered, and your father has killed the prize calf because he got him back safe and sound. The older brother was so angry, just like those Pharisees, that he would not go into the house. So his father came out and begged him to come in. But he spoke back to his father. Look, all these years I have worked for you like a slave and have never disobeyed your orders. Now, wasn't this kind of the mindset of the of the religious people? I mean, we've done all this for you, God. We've kept your rules. We've worked so hard to keep your rules. And look, here we are persecuted by the Romans. Okay, we've worked so hard to do what is right. Why don't you treat us better? What have you given me? Not even a goat for me to have or a feast for my friends. But this son of yours wasted all your property on prostitutes and when he comes back home, you kill the prized calf for him. My son, the father answered, you are always here with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be happy because your brother was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. So again, there's still the, the celebration about the one that came home. So, here, the, the prodigal son is a representative of the rebels who've come home. Again, those outcasts, the people that were so attracted to Jesus. And the other son represents the loyal legalists who stayed home, but they don't know God. Okay, They're, they're keeping the list, but there's no enjoyment. They're not having any, any kind of a meaningful relationship with God. Okay, They're gritting their teeth and keeping the rules. And they're very displeased when these kinds of people seem to be coming home. Okay, So can you see that there's a kind of a progression here that Jesus is making? Now, the fourth parable is a very difficult one. And so I'm not going to say a lot about it except to just kind of get to the bottom line. Because now Jesus is really, I think, pointing out. What is the root of their problem? So he tells the parable of the shrewd manager, and then he summarizes this way. No servant can be the slave of two masters. Such a slave will hate one and love the other, or will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, How many times did Jesus say that seemed to be the root, the selfishness, the greed, You know, underneath all of the religiosity. And notice, when the Pharisees heard this, they're there. Hey, the same group, when they heard this, they made fun of Jesus because they loved money. Okay, so he starts out with a very gracious story about the 99 sheep and the lost sheep. And now he's he's just kind of laying all his cards on the table. Here's, let me just tell you, here's the root of your problem. And then Jesus said to them, You are the ones who make yourself look right in other people's sight, but God knows your hearts. For the things that are considered of great value by people are worth nothing in God's sight. The law of Moses and the writings of the prophets were in effect up to the time of John the Baptist. Since then, the good news about the kingdom of God is being told, and everyone, okay, just look around you. These people that you despise is forcing their way in, except for you. Okay, so again, we have five parables that have a point and a direction, and it culminates here in The Rich Man and Lazarus. Okay, so let's just read the parable and then try to understand why Jesus went on to tell it. So there was once a rich man dressed in the most expensive clothes and lived in great luxury every day. Now, again, what, what is the mindset of the day? If you're rich, what does that mean? Blessed by God. Okay, God, you're in God's favor. So by definition, as they're hearing the story, this guy is righteous. There was also a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Okay, again, by definition, what does that mean? He's cursed by God. He's not in God's favor. So we have two uh, dramatically different individuals here. And Lazarus uh, used to be brought to the rich man's door, hoping to eat the bits of food that fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died. And here, I think, I just wish we could hear it. Because I just bet there was a, a gasp or a physical reaction when Jesus got to this point in the story. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the Feast of Heaven. Okay, He does not belong there. Okay, He's sick. He's poor. He's going to the other place. Okay, So this is, a, again, a, a dramatic reversal in their, in their theology. And to make it worse, the rich man died and was buried, and in Hades... Where he was in great pain, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. Okay, This is where we get the concept of when we're in heaven, we're going to see those in hell. There will be this chasm in between and we can see what's going on. We can communicate back and forth. That largely comes from this parable. So we called out, Father Abraham, take pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and cool off my tongue because I am in great pain in this fire. But Abraham said, remember, my son, that in your lifetime you were given all the good things while Lazarus got all the bad things, but now he is enjoying himself here while you are in pain. Besides all that, there is a deep pit lying between us so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, nor can anyone cross over to us from where you are. The rich man said, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house where I have five brothers. Let him go and warn them, so that they at least will not come to this place of pain. And Abraham said, your brothers have Moses and the prophets to warn them. Your brothers should listen to what they say. The rich man answered, that is not enough, Father Abraham. But if someone were to rise from death and go to them, then they would turn from their sins. But Abraham said, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone were to rise from death. Okay, so uh, that's the that's the parable, and um, again, it, it's a difficult parable. But uh, maybe just I want to see: Do any of you have thoughts about why Jesus would go on and, and tell a story like that? How does it fit? You don't have to agree with me, but um, but I'm just curious: How how the parable strikes you? Is it helpful? Is it literal? What if we try to make everything literal in the parable? Um, in fact, today, do you know of anyone who believes when we die, we actually go to Abraham's bosom? Um, a chasm in between? Okay, not, not many in contemporary Christianity. Well, actually, I did hear a sermon two or three years ago uh, where the pastor said that the, um, the sea of glass is mixed with fire, And that's because we can see through and we can see into hell. So, But do we really believe that that for all of eternity we'll be enjoying ourselves and whenever we look down we can always look through that chasm and rejoice because we're not there? Um, If the soul is apart from the body, is there a need to cool the tongue? Is there a literal tongue in hell? And if you were the rich man, would you ask for a drop? I mean, why not a bucket, a tanker, I mean, something, you know, why just a drop? Okay, isn't this just meant? It's a, it's a story, right? It's meant to get us into it, uh, to teach us something. And it's also interesting that if you look up every exa- other example of Hades, Hades is always just the place where you die. It's the grave. Very different from Gehenna, okay, which we'll talk about in two weeks. This is the only example in the entire New Testament where there's pain and suffering associated with Hades. So Hades is just, you're dead. Okay, so it's it's interesting that there is this uh, one exception. Okay, so I think we have a, a difficult time here if we are taking parables and we're making ten doctrinal points. That's not the purpose. In fact, if you go through other parables, um, a couple of years ago we went over the, uh, the, the parable of Micaiah and the lying prophets in the Old Testament. And you remember the prophet came and God gave him this parable, and the parable was that God was looking around for someone that could deceive King Ahab, and he sent out a lying prophet. We take it literally, God sends out people to lie, to deceive? No, there's a point to that parable. So I would say the same thing here, there's a point. What is the point? Then I guess is the question. So do we take other individual points of other parables literally? No, that's not the point of the parable. It's to make one or two points. So in the parable then, who is the rich man? Literally, uh, he's dressed in purple and fine linen. And so the rich man, I think just like all of the other parables, Jesus is talking to rebellious legalists who are very offended by the way, the things he's saying, and he is addressing them. They see themselves as the rich man. They are rich. okay. And so again, the shock to be going to the wrong place. Who is Lazarus? Uh, Do you find it curious that Jesus chose the name Lazarus? Could have chosen John or Matthew or any other name, but he chose Lazarus. Okay, Wouldn't that be, isn't that interesting that he chose the name of a man that he did resurrect? Okay, and so the, the end of the parable, remember, as Jesus um, tells the story, is um, that they say that's not enough, Father Abraham, but if someone were to rise from death, did Lazarus rise, rise from death, and go to them, then they would turn from their sins. But Abraham said, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone were to rise from death. And the, the resurrection of Lazarus is often called the, the crowning miracle of Jesus. Remember, he was really dead. Okay, he stinks. Okay, Lazarus was dead. And so it's just surprising that after the resurrection, the, uh, bringing Lazarus back to life, that from that day on, the Jewish authorities made plans to kill Jesus. I mean, you'd think if you'd seen something like that, it would have an impact but it drove them to the other extreme. From that day on, they made plans to kill Jesus. The chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus too. Because on his account, many Jews were rejecting them and believing in Jesus. So this did actually happen. And I think there's, there's real meaning for just putting Lazarus in there. So I guess my summary would be that this is a hard parable for a hardened and proud people. And Jesus is, I mean, you know, if you were a parent and your son was just going the wrong direction, um, wouldn't you use every method possible to try to shake him out of it? And so I think he's telling something that will just shock them and to tell them, no, you're going to hell and not the other direction. And let me make it very plain. Let me get you into the grips of this story and at least cause you to look at the possibility that you're dead wrong. And so the point here is, had they listened to Moses and the prophets? They would have accepted Jesus, and they will not be convinced even if someone were to rise from death. Now, I like to think that actually the people there, perhaps around Jesus at this time, that they rejected him and they dismissed the parable. But after the resurrection, Peter gives his speech in Acts 2. What does he do? He makes a case for Jesus being the rising Savior, and he talks about the Old Testament, gives evidence from Moses, from the prophets. And he talks about how Jesus was raised. And that, that had a profound impact. In Acts 2:41, many of them believed this message and were baptized. And about 3,000 people were added to the group in that day. Now, is it possible that some of the people standing around Jesus that heard the story of the rich man and Lazarus were among this group? They thought about the story. And they put it all together. They thought about Lazarus. They thought about Jesus. Maybe they looked at their Old Testament in a different way. And that perhaps some of those were the converted people that became strong members of the early Christian church. And Jesus was trying to win these people. And I, I like to think that perhaps he did. So what is hell then? This story, I would say, is not a teaching about hell. It's a teaching to meet the people in that time. So what is hell? And so our talk next time will kind of go off of this verse in Matthew 5:22, because there is hell. Jesus talks about it. What is it, though? In Matthew 5.22, if you call your brother a worthless fool, you will be in danger of going to the fire of hell. And so we'll, we'll try to wrap our minds around what it actually is next time. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, there's certainly much to admire uh, just in the depths that you would go uh, stooping to reach people um, at different places in time and history. And... Um, Thank you for meeting each one of us exactly where we are. Please help us to be responsive to your voice and to every day come closer and closer to you as revealed in Jesus Christ. Amen.